This episode was released during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, shows like The Muppet Show wouldn't exist. You can learn more at SAGAFTRAStrike.org and WGAContract2023.org. If you'd like to support the striking workers, please go to entertainmentcommunity.org. It's Muppeturgy, and we're going gaga about the Victor Borga episode of The Muppet Show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are Christy Bauer, Michal Richardson, and Adam Grossworth. Here is a Muppet News Flash. We are here this week to talk about Season 4, Episode 5 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of May 22nd, 1979, and it aired in New York City on November 5th, 1979. It was number 7 in the air order. In the news on this day, um, it's kind of a big news day, leading off with the fact that it is day two of the Iran hostage crisis. I did not look up how long that actually lasted, but many, many, many more days, and it's still a very famous event that they've made movies about and stuff. The closing of some nuclear reactors may have to be ordered because of the proximity of some of the 72 operating ones to population centers, such as New York and Chicago, according to the chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Uh, this is more. Uh, post Three Mile Island stuff. Ronald Reagan and Ted Kennedy leading the presidential primary polls. Yay for America. Well, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, more yay for America. The manned space shuttle is months behind schedule. Its costs are overrunning estimates. Its management has been juggled. A plague of technical problems has postponed its first orbital test flight until next summer, if not later. I'm pretty sure that that ended up being later but when i went down my star trek hole uh a couple episodes ago um, yeah (laughs) yeah it's klingon it's not pretty um there was a uh there's a shot of of the enterprise the spatial enterprise and i actually thought isn't that early for this but no because they were they were developing it new auto industry technology a source of wonder and anxiety when a breakdown or bottleneck occurs in the manufacturing department or on an assembly line an engineer observes the problem and records what he sees on the data mite with a Y, M-Y-T-E. When the observation is completed, this information is transferred to a computer, and 15 to 30 minutes later, the computer's advice for solving the problem emerges on a printout. With standard procedures, the same analysis would require eight hours. Yet the new technology is also causing concern over possible loss of jobs and possible strengthening of the industry's ability to exert control over the workers and their unions. So nothing changes. Except computer processing time. Here here we still are. Acid rain is a rising global threat in the view of many scientists and governmental officials who cite its rapid increase in more areas of the world. Whatever happened to acid rain? I think we fixed it. Like did we? Okay. Like I know the world is still dying, but in the 80s, there was like a lot of actual bipartisan support for fixing environmental things, which is why we also don't have a hole in the ozone layer anymore. Right. That also went away. It's just like acid rain was like the thing when I was a kid. Now it's just the world is on fire and we're all going to die. But, you know, it was very specific back then. I think as a kid, I thought that there was some correlation between acid rain and acid wash jeans. I mean, there could be. And I'm just realizing this now. (laughs) I always hear the phrase acid rain in the voice of James Taylor singing acid fire and acid rain. Oh, no. I put that down for extra credit on a high school chemistry test. I don't remember what the context was, but he was like, tell me a joke for extra credit. And I got it. Oh, you had a cool chemistry teacher. Yeah. 
Locally in New York, Mayor Koch was pelted with eggs. We should bring that back. What? Why? What did he? I don't know. I didn't. <laughs> There's a lot of news this week. I didn't read the whole thing. He Mayor Koch, notable guest star of Muppet Sick Manhattan. I was going to say he failed to hire a frog to help him balance the budget. People thought he needed help with it, maybe. Uh, Al Cap, the creator of Lil Abner, has died. And uh, we've talked about the, the sort of advertising section of the Times, and uh, there is an ad for, for ads, uh, which I loved. If you want M, apostrophe E-M, 35, semi-rich, super educated, and car, liquor, and travel oriented, Tennis Magazine just may have the best game in town. Semi-rich? This sounds like an advertisement in a college newspaper to try to recruit women to donate their eggs. Oh, no. I mean, you're right, but oh, no. <laughs> I'm just trying to get people to advertise in Tennis Magazine. I get it. I like, don't get it. It's the demographics. They, if, is it you're for people? For, yeah, if you're, if you're looking, looking for, people. for people to advertise to who are 35, semi-rich, super educated, and car, liquor, and travel oriented, you should advertise in Tennis Magazine. But I just find all of it so weird. <laughs> uh, there is also a two-page ad taken out by mobile uh, where they're defensive about their profits. Apparently, there was a news report uh, in which, you know, this, this is during the, the gas crisis, right? So gas is crazy expensive. And there was a news report claiming that mobile had made a profit and people were mad about it. And they took out a two-page ad that is truly unhinged and will be in the show notes to defend themselves from this inaccurate news report. Bonkers. All right, on the Cashbox Pop Charts, the number one song is Rise by Herb Alpert. It is still the 70s. Was there a single version of that? Or was that like the whole eight minute long? So long. I do not know. But if we go to ultimate70s.com, there will be a link to YouTube that may answer the question. But also may not because they could they could have just grabbed the first one they found. I don't know. Right. No, I, I like Herb Alpert a lot, but I mostly know his earlier uh, contribution. So I had to look this up and I'm not sure that I had ever heard it before. And it's fine it's weird that something like this ends up at the top of the charts because it's just like it's like an eight minute long jazz song without a whole lot of structure it's very like music slash porn yeah <laughs> right no vocals it's no feels so good by chuck mangione that's what i'm saying <laughs> uh but is it the fish that saved pittsburgh a movie that was in theaters <laughs> on this day starring <laughs> julia Irving and jonathan winters Muppet Show guest star Jonathan Winters. Yes. <laughs> also Promises in the Dark. That was the other uh, standout. On TV, the good stuff. CBS uh, had its usual lineup of The White Shadow, MASH, WKRP in Cincinnati, and Lou Grant. ABC had 240 Robert and Football. NBC had Little House on the Prairie, of course, and a 1977 movie called Heroes. Our TV highlight this week is the uh, Channel 2 local news, a, an expose called Behind the Blue Movie. Her parents always wanted her to be a dancer. Girls from all over come to New York to make it in show business. Some succeed, and some wind up on the sleazy side of the business. Tonight, newsbreaker Chris Borgen goes behind the red lights to show you who the porn stars are, who's behind porn, and who wants to sweep the streets clean of it. Mostly, I'm struck, on, struck by newsbreaker in that. I'm struck by her parents always wanted her to be a dancer. That's not true of anybody. <laughs> and also now she is. So, you know, sex work is work and stop being a dick about it. Newsbreaker. Yeah, stop breaking the news. I'm sorry. People don't 
wandered to ballet classes at age three by themselves. Plenty of parents want their children, especially their daughters, to become dancers. Uh, plenty of people have daughters who decide to be dance majors and have to fight their parents who are advising against it. Well, maybe if you'd started taking those pole classes at age three, you would have been better prepared for a world in the, a, a professional career. Pole classes at age three or bar classes? You meant pole classes. I, I said what I said. And I okay. What I said. <laughs> Just confirming. It's an important distinction. The horizontal versus vertical. Yes. Tonight, our very special guest star is that master of comedy and culture, Mr. Victor Borga. And we're all very excited about it. Especially Swedish chef. 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 You know, Victor Borga is not Swedish. He's Danish. So, fun fact that I have never bothered to check, uh, but it was told to me by a Danish-American friend many, many years ago. Um, apparently, they're like, Sweden versus Denmark is a real thing, like culturally, like they've obviously never gone to war or anything. But um, allegedly, um, all of the uh, rugs and other like floor related items at Ikea have Danish names. Because the Swedes they get stepped on. Yeah, because the Swedes like to to be like, you know, walking on figuratively the Danes. I, I was told this like, 20 years ago, I've never looked it up because I just don't want to know if it's not true. But that was all I could think of when that happened. Well, and also, isn't the Swedish chef in Sweden known as the Danish chef? I, I think that's true, that? yes. Hold on, let's see. Oh, no, no, no. It's in German-speaking countries, he's known as the Danish <laughs> chef. Oh, sure. <laughs> in Sweden, he's actually known as the Swedish cook. Oh, <laughs> good to know. Anyway. We'll get back to Sweden uh, near the end of the bio, but uh, we're starting with Victor Borga, pianist, comedian, and Great Dane. Borga Rosenbaum was born in 1909 in Copenhagen to a family of musicians. His father was a violinist and his mother was a pianist. Displaying an early aptitude on the piano, he developed his skills at the Copenhagen Music Conservatory and continued his studies in Berlin and Vienna. He made his debut as a concert pianist in 1926 and spent a few years playing straightforward classical music. In 1933, he married an American woman named Elsie Chilton, and that same year, he debuted his new comedic musical performance style. He tended to poke fun at the pompous culture of the concert hall, but he did so in a way that brought the audience in on the humor, even if they were also kind of the butt of the joke. He also liked to make fun of Hitler. I mean, what would you expect from a comedian named Rosenbaum? And when Germany invaded Denmark in 1940, the 31-year-old pianist-comedian read the room and relocated to the United States he had the good fortune to be performing in Sweden at the time. Once in the U.S., he took the name Victor Borga and set about learning both the language and the culture in order to adapt his act to an American audience. He was successful, finding his way first to Rudy Valley's radio show and then to Bing Crosby's. By 1945, he had his own American radio show, and he made his debut at Carnegie Hall. As the 50s rolled in, he was firmly established in popular culture. His marriage to Elsie didn't make it, but in 1953, he married his second wife, Sarah Bell Senna Scrapper, and they stayed together to the ends of their lives. They died three months apart in the year 2000. Anyway, back in 1953, Victor took his shtick to Broadway in a one-man show called Comedy and Music, and with an 849 performance run, he set a record for the longest-running one-man show in the history of theater, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Apparently, he also had a sideline as a poultry farmer, and he is credited with almost single-handedly popularizing rock Cornish game hens in the United States. It's shocking to me that that does not come up on The Muppet Show. (laughs) 
He was a frequent presence on television, appearing on variety shows, game shows, specials, and of course, Sesame Street, The Electric Company, and The Muppet Show. In 1963, Borga helped create the Thanks to Scandinavia Foundation, which funded scholarships for Scandinavian students and gratitude for the aid that many Scandinavians gave to Jews during the Holocaust. In 1979, he co-founded the American Pianist Association, which at the time was called the Beethoven Foundation, uh, which to this day gives out two major awards each year, one in classical and one in jazz. He received the Kennedy Center honor in 1999, and he continued to perform into his 90s before passing away at the age of 91. Uh, Does anyone have Victor Borger memories? I definitely do. My grandfather had a copy of this VHS tape that got advertised on TV a lot in the eighties. It was like the best of Victor Borga. And it was one of those things that like he excitedly showed me when I was a little kid and I ate that shit up. I mean, to be fair, Victor Borga was awesome. Like, like so good at what he did, but like, mm-hmm. I just, the thing that I remember is there, there was this thing where it's like, a, and I don't even remember the context, but at a certain point, and I think it was in the commercial for the videotape too. So like, I, I saw it for years, but like at a certain point he like turns around and, and says to somebody in the audience, pardon me, madam, are you laying eggs? <laughs> it's just like, it, and it it made me laugh so much as a little kid that like my grandfather for the rest of his life would just like randomly to make me laugh, just like say that out of nowhere. So yeah, I have really warm, fond memories of Victor Borga and his whole shtick. It's so delightful. I did not have the VHS tape, but I do remember the commercials advertising it because they were omnipresent. Mm-hmm. That is my, my sole memory or really knowledge of Victor Borga was from yeah, I was thinking like commercials. Why is this name a name I know? Like in that sort of monoculture way, but you know, whenever that's come up before, I've had a better sense of who the person was. And when you said that, Christy, I was like, oh yeah, that commercial, which I had forgotten, but yeah, it must have been on all the time. It's on YouTube. We'll put it oh, yeah, in the show notes. So, Michal, what did you think of the episode? I freaking love this episode. I loved a couple of different elements of this episode. I love how light and fun and zippy it felt. And I've said this before about uh, Muppet Show musical numbers with no intros, but I think that they they add a sense that anything might happen at any moment. They make all the random bits feel even more random and unexpected. So there were a couple of musical numbers that just came on with no intro or very little intro, like back by popular demand, the singing rats. So I just enjoyed a lot of little flourishes about this episode. And I also loved Victor Borga. I had only ever heard and only listened to, I hadn't seen the visuals of his performance before, but I had heard him through mixtapes or Dr. Demento stuff, but seeing the visuals and seeing the way he interacts with the Muppets was wonderful. It left quite an impression on me. Seeing Victor Borga perform brought up a lot of different associations for me, but he has such a vast talent and he uses it in such a specific way. It made me feel like he's some kind of a mime, but he uses his musical talent and he uses the piano as props, as like part of a miming act. I got kind of a Bill Irwin or a Harpo Marx vibe from it, where even as an older man, he is so physically agile and even that is impressive, but it's part of his shtick. And he also uses the status that he has as a classical musician and uses that as a prop 
So he's like playing the character of somebody who's going to do something prestigious and that makes it even sillier. And it vibes so well with the Muppets. It just works beautifully. Even I know we've said this about some other performers before, but he's doing his shtick and the Muppets are doing their shtick and they can exist at the same time. But there's a sketch in this episode that he does by himself with no Muppets. And it still makes sense as part of the Muppet show. Uh, I don't know why I'm second this week, but I will do whatever the outline tells me and say uh, I feel a little bad following that. But I I did not love this episode on the whole. Um, everything that you just said about Victor Borga is entirely true, but not for me. Um, like I can respect it. I get it, but didn't really do anything for me. And it suffers from uh, something that David mentioned a week or two ago um, where like the backstage plot is is doing one thing and the onstage is doing something totally different and Victor Borga isn't really that involved and it kind of bummed me out. But the parts that I loved, I loved so much that I don't care about any of that. Like there were two, there were two spots in this, neither of which involved Victor Borga at all that were like absolute highlights of the series so far. And it actually, you know, I was actually, I was dreading this episode because of the babies and while I still don't really like the baby band, like I now see Bobby Benson in a whole new light. We will definitely get into it. But I do like, I like that, that it did that. That was an unexpected, well, all surprises are unexpected, but that was, <laughs> that was a surprise. Uh, David, what'd you think? So this is maybe the first episode where I can confidently say I have never seen it before. I don't think I've seen any clips from it before. It was all new to me. So I think I probably like it a little bit better than I might have otherwise, just because it was such a joy to have like an entirely new Muppet show episode that I've never seen before. I, I, Adam, I think the things that you criticize about the episode uh, are true for me too. Like you come away from this, not feeling like you've gotten to know Victor Borga at all as a person, although you certainly get a sense of his stage persona. Although to me, Hall's point, I did not even clock that he does that whole sketch without a Muppet in it. I know which one it is. That once you said it, I had to like sort of go through and think, but it, he does blend in so well. So, you know, I think this is like a really, really solid middle of the road episode. And I say middle of the road in the Crystal Gale sense of a little bit for everyone, not an insult. Christy. Yeah. I, I would agree with that assessment. I think this would fall under my accumulating category of goes down smooth. Um, there's nothing to be mad at in this episode. It's super fun. I mean, Victor Borga is clearly a taste that I've acquired, but I, yeah, I think the complimentary shtick, it, every time that happens, it's always a joy. I liked this one a lot. It, I, I wouldn't put it in like my top tier, but I had a good time. Victor Borga. Oh, hi, Scooter. 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Borga. Fine, I'll be right up when you are ready. Say, uh, wh what's that you're playing? It's Beethoven. Any requests? Yes. Don't play Beethoven. <laughs> and so that's the bust of Beethoven who features prominently in this episode. We saw him periodically uh, throughout season three, and in particular, we learned in the Cheryl Ladd episode that he's not an incarnation of Beethoven. He is merely a bust of Beethoven. In that episode, he says, everybody has to do something to make a living, and I'm a bust of Beethoven. Uh, but in this case, he does seem convinced that he is, in fact, Beethoven. So maybe he did some soul-searching over the hiatus and learned some things about himself. 
who among us has not? Uh, Statler and Waldorf in the intro, uh, they take up a refrain I used to hear a lot from my old boss. Don't despair in half an hour, it'll be all over. (laughs) I wish we could say the same for you listeners, but uh, strap in, we're going to be here a while. (laughs) Yep, get excited. Okay, so Gonzo. I got off a plane two hours ago. I'm extra punchy. Yup. Okay, so Gonzo prepares to blow his trumpet, and then Bobby Benson's baby band, they swarm into the O, they attack Gonzo, and they trample him, and then they laugh menacingly into the camera. So that's the kind of day it's going to be, the rampaging horde of babies kind of day. We also should mention that when Kermit uh, announces that Victor Borg is the guest star, he takes a pause and he looks up like to like make sure, like, oh, yeah, the Muppet Show. Yeah, the... I- <laughs> Who's <laughs> quite the moment? <laughs> yes, you're in the right theater, Kermit. <laughs> well done. Yeah, I'm up at Joe backstage. Okay, so you all remember Bobby Benson of Bobby Benson's Baby Band. So this episode, Bobby Benson has to step outside with his friend for a quick moment. So the babies are left in the custody of the Muppet Show. Early in the episode, a mysterious man, or a Muppet whatnot, more accurately, in a trench coat, comes looking for Bobby Benson. What if what if there were two humans on the show and the other one was just like random? I realized like that some was random British actor. guy dressed like a flasher. <laughs> yeah, or like yeah. a, or, or like or Peter Falk just shows up with no. That would be amazing if Peter Falk just had a recurring role in the Muppet show. Hey, who was that guy? I've seen him on television. I don't know. He wanted to see Bobby. I wish I could remember the show. I wish you could remember this show. Oh, right. Tell Mr. Borgen to get ready for his opening number. Kermit and Scooter, both bad at their jobs. Yeah. So the mysterious man or whatnot, um, or three Muppets in a trench coat, uh, he finds Bobby in the canteen rehearsing with the baby band. And also there's Fozzie just like putzing around on the stairs in the background and waving around and dancing to the music that the babies are making. And it's wonderful. You Bobby Benson? Well, I sure am. I'd like to talk to you someplace in private. Well, gee, I don't know. The uh, the babies. I took care Bobby. I'll take care of the babies. We didn't really need that clip, but the way he says, I don't know, the babies just makes, <laughs> makes me laugh every time. I mean, also the way he says, I'd like to talk to you someplace private. And the fact that Bobby Benson comes back 20 minutes later, as though this is a regular occurrence. Is what what were they actually doing? It was something about an unpaid debt, right? Right. I mean, he says he. But also he's a cop. It doesn't really make any sense. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Right. I mean, Bobby Benson has always read so creepy that like everything about this without knowing what's going on, just immediately I, my mind went to the worst places. Same. Which obviously the show is not going to do and is not intended for us to do, but. But I think this entire episode is all about telling one story to the normies and another one to the perverts. Yes, but I mean, in the big instance of that, which we'll get to, I don't know that they're doing that on purpose. I think they are. And remember who plays Bobby Benson? Our boy Richard Hunt. He does what Fair. he's doing. Fair. Okay, we'll get to it. We'll get to it when we get to the All story. Right. But let's yeah, we'll get through the story. Okay, so Fozzie's left in charge of the babies. He announces to the babies that he's gonna tell them a whole bunch of funny stories, which they perceive as a threat, and they attack him. Uh he goes down and then surfaces long enough to say, I guess they've already heard that one. And the babies respond by knocking him back over and resume kicking the shit out of him. Attack babies. When Fozzie tells the babies that he's going to tell them a bunch of funny stories, he calls himself Fozzie the bear. I, call I, that too. I did wonder. 
Yeah. If the babies are having an outburst of pedantry, they just don't like the unnecessary article. Who's to say? It's going to be my new band name. So Fozzie doesn't make it that far. Uh, Backstage, Bobby just nonchalantly informs Kermit that he's going to be stepping out with his friend and inadvertently reveals that he is handcuffed to his friend. So this is fine. Uh, Kermit, I'm just going to step out for a few minutes with my friend. Uh, That's fine, Bobby. Uh, Have somebody watch the babies, will you? Oh, sure. Not Fozzie. He doesn't seem to have the... Come on, Benson. Come on. Uh, uh, Wait a minute. Hey, I just remembered what TV show I saw that guy on. It was the 6 o'clock news. He's a cop. Well, what do you know? I guess cops are just on TV announcing themselves and hanging out on the news. Well, they're always there, you know, giving usually uh false information about local crime to the newscasters like that's a common thing that must be it so who's going to take care of the babies fortunately piggy steps in to save the day she makes a big show of demonstrating to kermit how well suited she is to motherhood until she gets the babies into her dressing room don't worry about the babies i shall take care of them (laughs) you miss piggy of course! I just love children, and they adore me! I don't believe this. Kimmy, I'll make a wonderful mother someday! Relatable. <laughs> so Piggy makes this great face when she tells Kermit she'll make a wonderful mother someday. She does that little pouty thing, and then Kermit does that gulping thing. And Jim and Frank are just very good at their jobs. Anyway, the babies wreak havoc with Piggy's dressing room. Uh, I don't even know how to describe what they're doing in there. There's a swing. One of them is swinging from the They're swinging ceiling. from the chandelier. They're yeah. coloring on the walls. One of them appears to have a pill, like a giant capsule. It would be like a novelty pill because it's too big for anybody. Or was it like, like an aerosol can to me? Like, oh, maybe. Like, yeah. I was going to say, like, is it some kind of like 70s product I didn't recognize? Yeah. Like, I thought it was a makeup thing. Like they were just eating her products, whatever they were eating. Yeah. Or whatever her products might have been. Or like a leggings egg. I mean, I believe the piggy would have some pills in her dressing room, but. Oh, sure. Still the 70s. Liza's coming up soon, so. (laughs) I mean, I can't wait. Anyway, all's well that ends well. Bobby just settles his business and gets unarrested, and he shows back up at the end of the episode. Hey, Kermit, I'm back. Oh, good. The babies are upstairs with Miss Piggy. Oh, fine. Oh, and instantly, Bobby, uh, what was that all about? Oh, just an unpaid debt. Well, actually, I lost a lawsuit to the Tooth Fairy. (laughs) So the cop was the Tooth Fairy. No, the, the tooth fairy sued him, and the right, the cop was just enforcing. For some reason, the detective was set to sent to settle up. Not how any of this works. I, this is not a satisfactory resolution. I mean, Miss Piggy doesn't have to take care of any babies anymore, which is satisfactory. Well, well I I want to put forth that you were taking what Bobby says at face value. No, I'm I'm not. That's what there's I'm no reason why he needs to tell Kermit any of his business. So right. he may just be like making shit up. I I read it that he. He was, in fact, settling a debt, but was not sued by the Tooth Fairy. That part was a joke. 
even so, it doesn't really make any sense. And, yeah. and that's okay. I just would like to know why Bobby was being arrested. Child trafficking. I mean, yes, that's the obvious answer, but... But it wasn't actually a cop. It was the person that he owes the money to for the children that have been trafficked. Well, who is it? Who was a dirty cop, which is redundant, but he... Right, because he Scooter recognizes him as an actual cop, so he must oh, have been. Right. That's so weird. Oh, so it's not a sex thing because the guy's an actual cop. No, he's an actual cop who was involved in a child trafficking ring. You can be an actual cop and also be a criminal. Right. This is a well-known okay. fact. <laughs> so you're saying some cops are bad. <laughs> that, yes, but only some. It's a large sum. Anyway. They might Bobby all be Benson. bastards, but only some are bad. Anyway, I as I said, have always found Bobby Benson extremely creepy, but he also, I realize hasn't really done anything until now. Like he's conducted the baby band, but he hasn't had like a scene. And I found him weirdly sweet in this. Like he is, he's generally charming when he's like concerned about who's going to take care of the baby. Yeah. Like, yeah. Something really lovely about like actually getting to see that relationship, which I know is a very weird thing to say, even on the list of weird things we've said on this podcast, but I don't know. I really liked it. And even the way he interacted with everybody else where he's like, he's sort of, he's being like a little smarmy, but also very charming. And you can sort of, I don't know. He made sense to me as a character in a way that he never has before. And I sort of love him now. And I love yeah. that when he returned that one of the babies was like, <laughs> well, also the baby's word for no reason saying piggy mama, Kermy dada. I think piggy which, trained them. Yeah. That was the, <laughs> them. um, I mean, it also raises all kinds of questions about like whose babies are these? Does he have just permanent custody? Like he just what found them? They're yeah, like the lost boys. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I think the the supposed implication from past episodes has been that like he is the show business guy that these babies' families have like. Well, I assume turned, so. him, turned yeah. them over to with the hopes of the babies achieving stardom. Their mothers wanted them to be a dancer. Right. Exactly. Okay, and then there's the issue of Piggy thinking that she can just convince Kermit to see the light and commit to her by just repeating what a great mother she is, which is really the only beef I have with this episode. I mean, listen. It's not going to work. I think that there is a little bit of logic to that, where if you are the kind of person who is interested in having children and you are single and looking for a partner, Seeing someone who is particularly good with children can be attractive. Now, is Kermit that person? Probably not. Yeah, by all indications, no. Yeah, neither of them seem to want children or be good with children. So, Right. Even just hearing Piggy say she'll make a wonderful mother someday surprised me. Because that doesn't seem to be on her list. And frogs have such a different relationship with children and parents than pigs do like remember kermit is like one of twenty thousand or something mm-hmm. in the family so uh i don't think there's the same assumption that you have the the lifelong bond and right the- well i don't know how it would work with their bouncing baby figs whether there would be nine of them or nine thousand of them well we know from up at most wanted that there are two and they're horrifying <laughs> All cops are baby band enthusiasts. <laughs> um, and so are we. So let's talk about some music. Uh, there's a lot of music in this episode, but uh, there's a lot of music that has appeared in other episodes. So we won't go too deep on things that we've talked about before. 
the very first thing that we hear is a thing that we have heard before, but this time it is played by Victor Borga. And you're not going to hear a clip of it because you've already heard a clip of it. Use the think system. Hear it in your head. Yeah, I'm play exactly. the clip again if you want me to, but yeah, it's the the, the menu in G major by Beethoven. It's what he was playing when Scooter came into his dressing room at the top of the show. Yes, and uh, we heard this in season one. Ralph played it in the Twiggy episodes UK spot. But let's move on to something a bit more masculine? Question mark. <laughs> Macho Man, as performed by rival gangs, question mark? Uh, it's real weird. It's real weird. It's less rival gangs and more annoyed Chelsea neighbors. Probably the West Village at this point, but yes. Yeah, so we have a gang, quote-unquote, of leather pigs, and then we have Gonzo and his disco chickens. Basically, Dickens. I remember in the Navy extremely well, and could yeah. not remember that. And so this started, and I was like, "Wait, what? They're do what? <laughs> what the fuck is happening?" I had the same. exact same experience. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that my first experience of this song was through a Muppet Show compilation album that included this rendition of it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'd seen it. Like once it got going, I was pretty sure I'd seen it before. Um, but uh, I mean, it's a song that has been very much in the culture for. 40 years or so. Um, so yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves though. We should talk about the song or Chris, you should talk about the song. So yes, this is a song by the village people from 1978. So it was pretty new at this point. And uh, if you don't know anything about the village people, I have some Shame questions, <laughs> uh, but uh, the village people are a disco group that was formed by two French music producers and a singer named Victor Willis, who is uh, still with the group to this day. He's the only original member still with the group. And they were created to capitalize on Disco's built-in gay audience. Village refers to, like, the village, as in Greenwich Village. And Victor Willis, interestingly, not gay. Uh, he was married to Felicia Rashad. Not sure those two things. I mean... <laughs> not sure one thing follows the other. Sure. Uh, uh, I'm just going to say it, that, like, uh, Victor Willis being not gay and also being the only one who survived the 80s? Tracks. Fair, fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if he's the only one who survived the 80s, but the only one who's still... Uh, he's, I don't believe that, that that's the case, but yeah. still dark and true enough. Sure. So yeah, so this was uh, Village People's first hit. It peaked at number 25 on the Hot 100. And Wikipedia has a lot of funny quotes from reviews of the time. Uh, my favorite is that Cashbox said that this funky number should be a dance floor hit. I mean, it was. 
This is a great time. I, I really, really need Gonzo's purple lemme hat. If I had it, I would wear it probably every day. Yeah, yeah you'd be wearing it right now. I would. Yeah. Before we uh, move away from the song itself, I went looking to see if like there was an actual video that they were referencing in this. And as far as I could tell, there wasn't. But that did send me you know, to just listen to the song, which I had maybe never done before beyond the chorus. And it is wild. In this version, they're only singing like the chorus and like two lines of the verse that they repeat. Um, so some sample lyrics, the like intro that they they cluck in the clip we just heard and that the pigs also hum actually has words. Those words are body, want to touch my body, body, it's too much my body. That is a, a sampling of those words. There are many more along those lines, including want to funk my body. Then one of the verses I pulled was, every man ought to be a macho, macho man to live a life of freedom. Machos make a stand, have your own lifestyles and ideals, possess the strength of confidence. That's the skill which does not sound like it scans, but that's what Google said. And I didn't check it. Uh, there's a lot going on in this song. And there's also a lot going on in the Muppet version of the song, but there's sort of two different lots. I have additional information about the membership of the band. Victor Willis actually left the band pretty early, like in, in 1978, and then rejoined the band in like 2017. Huh. And uh, this is a... There is a deep and fascinating Wikipedia page for anyone who wants to know more about the various uh, ins and outs of the lineups of this band. That yeah, there have been some lawsuits and copyright things, and um, yeah, but 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 when when he rejoined the band, there weren't any original members right left. Right, but that was after he settled a lawsuit with like the corporation that owned some of the intellectual property of the band or something. It's funny that we keep calling them a band, but the group. Yes. So I don't know who wants to start unpacking this sketch. Okay. Because we already, we established we disagree. <laughs> so are these, I mean, Christy mentioned this question earlier. Are these actually rival gangs? Is it, are leather pigs and disco chickens actually opposing sides? Uh, I, mean, I think so. Here's my read on this scene, and then you can agree to disagree. <laughs> Is that if you think about the disco culture of the moment, and specifically the gay disco culture of the moment, then as there is now, there are there were subcultures, and if uh, if this is news to you that leather pigs is a specific actual subculture in the gay world, sorry to be the one who has to share this with you. To put it very briefly, piggy in in gay subculture talk is a particular kind of kink that's sort of. Well, it's sort of what you imagine when you hear the word piggy to describe a kink, right? Like it's people who are, uh, you know, want to kind of roll around in the swill. Um, it's, uh, you know, has a little uh, elements of, of BDSM, which I think is why it sort of ties into leather. Not not all leather daddies are piggies. Um, not all piggies are into leather, although I would say many most are. So like that's a thing. And like the fabulous... Sequins and Spangles disco gaze represented here by Gonzo and uh, the chickens is a separate group. And so in some ways, this is almost like reenacting kind of the turf wars of, of the village of the gay dance club scene of the gay scene as a whole, which I think they were very much aware of when putting this together, but also needed to construct a plausibly deniable alternate story mm -hmm. so that if anyone was like what is going on here you can be like oh get it they're they're rival gangs and and see how it's like a rooftop kind of like west side story 
and they're fighting. That's my read. Yeah, I buy that. I it's also it's there was a whole you know anti disco movement, largely because the right the music was so driven by queer people and people of color, and so it's sort of interesting that they're like there's like the butch side and the and the more femme side with Gonzo and the Chickens, but then also this happens. Which just which feels backwards, <laughs> like. But also, it would be really weird if Link said that. So I don't know. I just. But remember too that at this moment, at least on the schoolyard level, like calling each other sissies didn't necessarily right read at least to kids as like a gay slur. Like I don't even was- not even as a gay slur, but you put it in a song called Macho Man in this context and have like the flamboyant character call the macho characters sissies. It's just, it's a little weird dramaturgically. Well, I think it's ironic. It's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think it's retroactively ironic. I don't think anybody was thinking about it that hard or placing the word sissies into the the rest of the conversation that we're having. I think it was, I think it was very consciously ironic to have Gonzo wearing, you know, these flared sleeves calling the biker gang sissies. Right. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that's, that is the joke there. Right. I did wonder at first if Gonzo was meant to be a pimp and and the chickens were his were his uh, his sex workers. I don't think that that's the case. Like as the number went on, I was like, no, this is really queer coded, and I don't think that's true. Um, but the other thing that and this like this might not be as true as I think it is because I wasn't there. But I have sort of always understood that a lot of people, especially straight people, didn't get the village people. Like didn't understand that their costumes were ironic and sort of what they were doing. And so I could also see certainly a good portion of the Muppet Show staff being in that camp. The lead singer of this is the leather guy. If you don't know the village people, they all have a role to play. And one of them is a leather daddy. And he is who sings lead on this. So I could see them being like, we'll dress the pigs up like the guy who sings the song and and not quite understanding what they were doing. (laughs) I could imagine that to be true. But also someone had to have actually read the lyrics to cut them. So maybe they got it. Yeah. If, if you pull up the village people on Wikipedia, they they have all of their various lineups over the years and sort of like the roles that people played. And the, some some of them just say nondescript, which I find Aww. very funny. But it's like they, there's usually a biker, a cop, a Native American, a construction worker, a cowboy. There's one that just says leather man, sailor. Uh, yeah, those are sort Admiral. of Admiral. <laughs> yeah, that tends to be where Victor Willis falls as as the cop, nautical one, or the nautical one, depending. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I also wanted to play Kermit's intro, which honestly felt a little homophobic to me. Anyhow, before we get to good things like guest stars, we have to pass through some strange and unknown territory. Come Oh no the strange and unknown village like just say queer Kermit we know what you right (laughs) it's fine and that's all you know so yeah I don't know there's just a lot we'll never know and we're coming at it from 2023 I loved it to be clear oh this was outstanding and I loved it through our 2023 (laughs) lens most of all because I'm like some gay shit on the Muppet show but I really I would love to know what they intended and we we never will so shouldn't allow gangs like that on the street. I'd rather have them on the street than on the stage. <laughs> gangs like what? <laughs> Again. <laughs> Don't think that word means what you think it means. 
Um, so we get another repeated bit of music, but in a very delightful context. Well, you'll be my guest. Let's play something together. Hey, can I do that? What do you know? Do you know anything? Maybe something by Bach? <laughs> my Bach is worse than my bite. <laughs> there are three Bachs, you know, Johann, Sebastian, and often Bach. I often Bach myself. <laughs> He's a witty dog. It's this uh, Hungarian Rhapsody number two. Uh, which we talked about on the Liberace episode, uh, but also shout out to the greatest piano duet in cinematic history in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. This is great. I mean, I can sort of see the argument for not including the mayhem or for not including Sam, but like if they had not included Ralph, like there would have been riots on the street. So I'm I'm glad that we we got this moment with the two of them. At one point towards the end of this, they start doing a thing where they keep switching places where Victor Boyle like gets up and walks around Rolf and then plays the baseball. Rolf plays the treble and then Rolf walks around Victor Borga. And I just kept trying to figure out what was going on just below the frame. Like where are Jim and Frank doing this? That's just a lot of people to, to maneuver. And if Victor is on a raised platform, then just the the way that they were able to choreograph this so he was able to step without looking down and not fall through a hole was pretty amazing. If he's not on a raised platform, then to have these two grown men with four arms all up and playing the piano while, while also moving around this other grown man, uh, it really kind of blew my mind. It's incredible. I think, and I, I thought about this a lot too, um, and uh, side note, I think it would have been Jim and Steve, I think Steve oh, right. been playing point, the piano. Steve probably took over. But I think you can probably cut yourself out saying where we're Jim and Frank, and it still would make sense. Um, I'm happy to be corrected on Mike. <laughs> I thought about this a lot also, and it did seem like the puppeteers were staying in place and Victor Borga was just walking around them, which, as you said, is in itself impressive. But yeah. there's a lot going on and so much that we won't be able to figure it out on our own. Also, usually Rolf has an offstage piano player like playing live. I think sometimes it's a trap, but I know I've I've seen like backstage photos of that. So I'm just curious if like if that if this was being played on two different pianos or if they just looped in the second part later. Well, to Michal's point, Steve Whitmire was a capable pianist in a way that Frank maybe wasn't. Yes, but I don't think you can actually play the piano with Rolf. Yeah, Rolf doesn't have enough fingers for that. Oh, I don't really? think it would actually work for Rolf to play. You the can piano. also you can see that he's not. Oh. Yeah. Whereas right. Victor Borga is. So I did wonder how the music track was working and whether it was pre-recorded, whether this piano was making any sound, whether right. maybe they had just pre-recorded their dialogue instead. Yeah. Or if there's a second piano somewhere that's doing the other part. But it it's so it all so seamless that you know, this is only a thing I would think about because we do this. Yeah. But even if we weren't thinking about it, I Love this sketch. This was wonderful. Also, the set is awesome. It's, yeah. Like, it's got these like piano key pillars. Oh, I love it. 
So because we're completists, we have to mention The Sound of Music, which we don't have to actually talk about it. But, Never heard uh, of it. Yeah. <laughs> Who wrote it, Christy? Uh, <laughs> oh, no, you didn't write it down. <laughs> no, it was written by Roger's name. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah. <laughs> <Pop quiz. laughs> yeah. So wh- why don't we let the, the rats br- bring us into the 20th century? When the clock strikes one, six and seven, we'll be right in seven, having on a rock, around the clock tonight. We're gonna rock, 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 till the broad daylight. We're gonna rock, gonna rock, around the clock tonight. Let's rock around the clock. Which is a very important song in the history of rock and roll music because it was the very first number one rock hit. Hmm. It was number one for two months uh, on the Billboard Pop Charts, the precursor to the Hot 100 in 1955, and it spent uh, seven weeks at number one on Cashbox. It was propelled into the number one spot because it was used in a movie called Blackboard Jungle. And uh, it was written by Max C. Friedman and James E. Myers. James E. Myers was writing under a, a pseudonym, uh, Jimmy DeKnight. <laughs> sure. Uh, and it was written in 1952. And the hit version was by Bill Haley and his Comets. And uh, that recording was number 159 on the original Terrible Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list. And sadly, it was not on the 2021 list. And this is a lot of fun. They were obviously still workshopping what rats look like. Yeah, they look real weird. <laughs> Literally, in my notes, these rats don't look right. <laughs> well, but some of them do, right? Like, there's the two kind of dancing upstage right who look more or less like what we think of Muppet rats looking like. Then there are others that look like fucking New York City subway rats. Yeah. <laughs> I, d- I don't like the voices. I, j- I don't. Yeah. I, just, I do not like this. Oh, I really enjoyed this. Those rats are having a good time. And they move like Muppet rats do, like the way that you would expect later Muppet rats to move. They're just the the faces aren't quite right, but they're still rocking out and having a good time and wearing little skirts and dancing around. I think it's super cute. Do we talk about the return of our old friend Catgut? Do it. Our old friend Catgut returns. <laughs> our old friend Catgut returns. Creepy Cat. as ever. <laughs> <laughs> But it is funny. So Catgut wanders into the scene and all the rats immediately disperse. And then Catgut leaves and the rats return and finish the song. It's a cute little moment. That's away. The rats rock the heck out. Also, I just learned it was the uh, theme song for the first two seasons of Happy Days. I apparently I've never seen an episode from the first two seasons. Yeah, I think I think they maybe replaced it later. Mm-hmm. Once they had their own theme song, like in like some probably. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, I've definitely seen a few that had that. Wow, we can include a, a clip in the show notes of that Happy Days main titles with the Bill Haley in the comments. It's weird because the, yeah. the visuals are exactly the same. Uh, it's just yeah. a song. Unsettling. Weird. Why is that taking up space in my brain? Ah, well, let's let's float on. <laughs> <laughs> It's the Blue Denium Waltz, again. 
this is a waltz by Johannes Strauss from 1867. So uh, shout out yet again to the public domain. And we've talked about this before. It was in the Moment Chance episode. Though in that episode, we weren't necessarily hearing it as it is meant to be heard. Not that we're hearing it as it's meant to be heard now, but this is a little closer because in that episode, that was the terrible, horrible bit with Zelda Rose in the library with all the upsetting noises that uh, I, I know Adam hates as much as I do. So much. So yeah, dude, this is this is fun. Yeah, but this is the the non Muppet bit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, the busted Beethoven is there. It was just hanging out. Yeah. But no Muppets have any dialogue, and no active moving Muppets are on screen. It's just Victor Borga doing his shtick. I can't think of a, a natural segue for this next one, so let's just move let's on. Just act it. naturally. <laughs> Press on. <laughs> Well, hope you'll come and see me in the movies. Then ah! I know that you will plainly see. Who are you? The biggest fool that ever hit the big time. Oh. And all we gotta do is hack naturally. Hey, wait a minute. You can't do this. Why not? Well, you're a reflection. You're supposed to do just what I do. But you do ludicrous things. I do what? Ludicrous things. Of course I do! I'm an artist! <laughs> and all I gotta do is act naturally. So this is Act Naturally in our UK spot. I thought that this was of a significantly higher quality than the UK spot normally has. I was I agree. And then the rat the number. Spot. Like they should have switched yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I had assumed the rat number was the UK spot, but no. So this was on one of the VHS compilations. I this was the one piece of this episode that I knew inside and out i love this so much so yeah this is a song called act naturally uh that was written in 1961 uh by a country singer named johnny russell it was originally recorded by buck owens and the buckaroos i often buck myself yeah uh it- want to buck that body. <laughs> often, body, body i often buck myself yes uh so it took johnny russell two years to convince anyone to record this song which is wild to me that's a great song yeah it, it was an a number one hit on the Hot Country Singles in Your Area chart in 1963. <laughs> and I would venture to guess that most people, if they know this song, not from uh, Gonzo or from Buck Owens, know this because it was recorded by failed skiffle outfit The Beatles in 1965 uh, with a, a very charming Ringo vocal. And in 1989, Buck Owens and Ringo recorded a duet version of it. So oh, really I love cute. that. Yeah, and apparently, like, this is a, a thing that Ringo does in basically every live show he ever does, which is understandable. Yeah, I, I love this. It's Gonzo singing uh, with himself in the mirror, but uh, his reflection has a mind of his own. It's just the perfect Gonzo bit, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's a song that feels like it could have been written for the character. Yeah. It's just so, I, I don't know, it's just like, it's the right vibe. And it's not as much as a of a downer as the last time yeah. he had one of these. And like, oh yeah, like the lyrics kind of are, but because it's a peppy number and it's a little weird, it just suits him better. Yeah. And he's rocking this little vest and plunking on this little uke. Ah, oh, it's so cute. Do you think that this was done with two puppeteers or was this done with Dave doing two separate takes on either side that were edited together? Huh? I think that some of the takes have a mirror. And some of the takes are using a puppeteer on the other side of the mirror because you can see the switch. You can yeah. see when they 
they shift and it's a different scene happening. And I think those scenes have a gonzo puppet behind the mirror. Well, I mean, there's specific moments where like the gonzo puppet in the reflection changes the outfits. So those cuts are really obvious. Uh, I had thought until you asked the question that it was two puppeteers at, cause you can sort of see like the way the mirror is ang- angled and built, like how the illusion is being accomplished, but that same illusion could also be being used to do a split screen. So. Right. Like, like they don't ever do the thing where like the puppets like reach through the mirror and touch or something that would indicate right. and, that they're actually in the same space. Right. And yeah. the same, like the same trick that you would use to do it live is also how you would stitch the two shots together. So uh, in terms of just like the angle being what it is. Right. So uh, I thought I knew the answer and realized I actually have no idea. But it's very, except for those 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 cuts when he you know does a TikTok costume change. Uh, it's really seamless. Like whatever they're doing, just looks great. It really and looks. Both familiar. performances feel very much like real Gonzo, which is what I mean. Obviously, they're all very good at their jobs. They're very good at pretending to be each other's characters. But that's why I asked. Yeah. No, it's a it's a solid it's a solid question. Yeah, I only thought about it because I noticed the cut. Um, early in the song when the Gonzo in the mirror is still wearing the same outfit as Gonzo. So the fact that there was a cut made me think that these were two different shots. We may never know. We get more Beethoven. Moonlight Sonata, which we have talked about before on the Julie Andrews episode. And depending on who you ask, it was either written by Beethoven or if you ask my mother, it was written by my brother for her. Uh, Uh. (laughs) It's our our ongoing family bit. No wonder I love the Muppets. I come from people who have ongoing bits. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't know if I've expressed my deep love of the bust of Beethoven puppet, but I love that puppet. <laughs> it's so great. It nods off very convincingly. Yeah. <laughs> so does Victor Borga and so does Fozzie. Fozzie I mean, does this beautiful thing. Oh, sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to wax poetic about Victor Borga's comedy chops like just his like physicality is oh my god it's so funny it's so funny and Fozzie does this lovely thing where he's staring in rapt attention at Victor Borga playing and then he suddenly extremely abruptly just nods (laughs) off onto the piano (laughs) just topples over that's great and Fozzie sleeping just like looking at Fozzie from behind as he like breathes deeply oh it's so cute yeah even this soporific sketch in in this episode um just fills me with joy i love well i gotta google what soporific means sleepy sleep inducing (laughs) i googled it earlier just to make sure that i had it right but i think i have it right (laughs) you do
So this is Tchaikovsky's Piano Concerto Number no. 1, which was originally written in 1874, and Tchaikovsky apparently revised it several times. The last version, which is the version that is best known today, was in 1888. And apparently the most noticeable difference between the original version and the final version is that... The the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he revised it to add more kazoos. Yes. Frog dogs, uh, bears, and chickens, and things, and also kazoos. <laughs> Was that those like uh, hard piano chords were like rolling arpeggios instead? Uh, and in more recent usage, it was used as the sporting anthem of Russia in the Olympics in place of the country's actual national anthem in 2021 and 2022 because of the doping scandal that prohibits the use of their national symbols. So, uh, uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Because the Russian team wasn't actually the Russian team. It was like right. unfederated Russian athletes yeah. competing not on behalf of Russia because Russia's in trouble. Great. Ergo yeah. Tchaikovsky. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The orchestra is provided by the baby band and Victor Borga is sort of reacting and doing takes to the camera and exclaiming about how it's a baby band, but also he's just kind of accepting it. Although at one point he gets so startled that he just leaps off the piano bench and falls to the floor. <laughs> I gotta say, of all the different times we've heard the baby band, this piece fits with their instrumentation the best. Mm-hmm. I think they're also making a choice to be a little more respectful of the music and the guest star and and not not do quite as much with it to make it sound so awful. Perhaps. I mean, it's yeah, it's still the baby instruments, but um, I also as a as a middle school percussion player i love the baby with the timpani <laughs> just yep. like banging away it's very <laughs> cute i don't think we actually hear that timpani at all in the in the mix but maybe laugh every time oh you got entertained by a baby this episode must be doing something right it happens yeah and yeah, they 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 segue into some other songs. They uh, play "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star," uh, the Colonel Bogey March, and "Pop Goes the Weasel." So it's not like, I mean, it's it's respectful, but uh, you know, yeah, they they're still doing bits. It was only reading this in Muppet Wiki that I learned that that piece of music is called the Colonel Bogey March and not just the theme from the Bridge Over the River Kwai. <laughs> oh, that I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm not going to yeah. ask. Got it. <laughs> I also did not know that the tune Twinkle Twinkle Little Star had a French name. And so I looked that up and Mozart has like a very famous, like, was it 12 variations on, uh, which if you like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and or harpsichords, check it out. I don't know how to feel or we'll whether to check it out. Too. It's also the alphabet song, isn't it? It's all yeah, the same yeah. melody. Yeah. Black Sheep is a very oh, yeah. multi-purpose melody. Very versatile. What a wonderful world. No, now I'm angry. Wait, why? Because Christy ruined what a wonderful world for me. Although that's happened before, I feel. I think it happened on the episode where the Muppets performed What a Wonderful World. Yeah, but there there was a puppy to distract me, and now it's just babies. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business. So one little bit of show business. The Swedish chef is back making tortilla soup. And attempting to slaughter a turtle, which is not going as planned, because the turtle keeps retreating back into its shell before the chef can cut its cute little head off. And eventually the chef breaks out his blunderbuss 
and the turtle reciprocates by retreating all the way into the shell and poking out some, I don't even know what to call the guns that come out of a tank. The turtle turns itself into a tank. And I guess that's the end of the Swedish chef. <laughs> and shout out to the way that uh, the chef taps the turtle with onions at the beginning. Like that's how cooking works. Yeah. Tor- yeah. The <laughs> this is not how turtles work. Uh, a thing that I wish I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tell us more. <laughs> I, just there's this thing that like appears on the internet periodically. That's like, did you know that uh, a turtle shell is in fact part of its skeleton? And it's like a, like with an illustration with a cross section of what, turtles look like on the inside and i did not need to ever know that but now i do and now you all do too let me tell you if you are even a little bit interested in turtles which i know is sort of a crazy thing as i hear it coming out of my mouth uh at the natural history museum in new york and i imagine it most of the better natural history museums turtles and their ancestors form a significant part of the fossil collection uh and so you can learn all sorts of cool stuff about how turtle shells work now and how they used to work millions of years ago Billions of years ago, could they turn around in them? No. And turn into tanks? Well, that's what you're saying is not how turtles work. Is turtles? It's not that turtles can't pull their bodies into their shell. Right. They can't turn they around can't inside their shell. Yeah, the but they can't actually. The other correct. end. It's yeah, not okay, like a little house that they live in. <laughs> or Although, turn themselves into tanks. Well, that's different. That's at, that's a spending disbelief. At the aquarium in Bermuda, they have the shell that has been vacated by a dead Galapagos turtle. Uh, so, you know, Galapagos turtles are giant uh-huh. and they let you crawl inside it and <gasps> pose for photos uh, with the nope. turtle shell on your back, which sounds horrific in the abstract, but in the moment, actually, it's just a lot of fun. And if I can find that photo, I will share it with you. Nope. Amazing. Not in my crawling into... Yearbook, that photo. <laughs> I mean, admiring fossils is one thing. Crawling into somebody's skeleton and taking a picture is quite another. Well, but yes, he's not using it's the Natural anymore. History Museum. <laughs> they're not using it yes it's not like fresh like it's they've cleaned it <laughs> let's finish this uh wait not without talking about the swedish chef fucking fisting a turtle <laughs> <laughs> well tell us about the swedish chef fucking fisting a turtle david it all comes back around to the leather pigs seriously so it's not just that the turtle <laughs> goes into his shell and turns around or whatever the first thing he does is when the turtle retracts into his shell, we don't know that it's turned around. And so the chef puts his hand in going after the turtle as though he's going to like pull him back out. But when we discover that the turtle has in fact turned around, we discover this because the chef gets this look on his face, which is, oh my God, my hand is inside this turtle's asshole. And it is such specific puppetry. It's beautiful. Uh, but also, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> I mean, when you're reaching inside the turtle shell, you know you're in for some trouble. He was reaching in after the head, and, and so he could easily have had his hand chomped off. And instead, he ended up in the butt. I don't know which is worse. It was not what I expected from the Muppet Show. Although I should have, because this is, again, the episode that started with the leather piggies. There you go. I was going to say, is this a, a no homo from the chef? Oh, I don't think so. I think this is, uh, you know, it's about consent and expectations. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> It's a very invasive process he's using. To the to turtle's turtle. credit, it does not react adversely to the chef's invasion. Well, other than turning into a tank and killing him. Well, I mean, it does not. It does not have a specific reaction to having Frank Oz's hand up his butt. 
<laughs> the turtle looks pretty amused by the whole thing. Uh, and for Pokemon fans among our listeners, uh, we should note that the turtle, uh, when he turns into a tank, looks a lot like Blastoise, and yet Blastoise will not exist for a good 20 years after this. So this is an episode for piggies, <laughs> Pokemon fans. Uh, classical music lovers. Classical music lovers. Drag queens, arguably. Yeah, the lovers, uh, the dreamers, and me. Yeah. Also, actually, t- to go back to this, <laughs> uh, I think one of the chickens in Macho Man is carrying handcuffs. Sure. Just, you know, throwing that out there. That- They're chickens wearing afros. If, they've, if they can do that, they can wear handcuffs. Indeed. Yeah, come on, babies. Mr. Borga, since you are our guest soloist tonight, the babies would like you to have this baton as a souvenir. Oh, but you have given me so much already. Oh, like what? A chicken pox. <laughs> well, uh, before we say goodbye, does anyone have final thoughts on this episode? Uh, just one thing that was in my notes that I didn't say that maybe isn't worth saying is that Bobby Benson sort of feels like a Bill Beretta character, even though he is <laughs> he is many, many years away from ruining everything he touches on the Muppets. Uh, but yeah, that's all really. So one thing that I wanted to say about the energy that I got from Victor Borga, in addition to the Bill Irwin and Harpo Marx energy, I also got a lot of Anna Russell with the purporting to perform classical music and uh in a very prestigious way and then making it absolutely ridiculous if you enjoyed this episode of love it show or if you enjoy victor borga and if you haven't heard of anna russell do yourself a favor and look her up if you're into gilbert and sullivan or wagner or even dare i say english music hall songs she has a ridiculous parody for you and she'll make it worth your while and i had one note that i also forgot to share we are just uh firing on all cylinders tonight <laughs> Uh, which is that during the Macho Man number, one of the ways that Gonzo's gang attacks the pig gang is that Gonzo picks up one of the chickens and pulls it back on a clothesline and slingshots yeah. across the pigs. And I wonder if this was the inspiration for the video game Angry Birds. We need to mention that Fozzie is there as Bear on Patrol. Also true. Just because yeah. that came up that came up a couple episodes ago where he was in the in the barbershop. So they're they're using that costume more yeah or they just wanted to hammer home the the west side story thing by getting an officer Krupke. well right but that they use fozzy to do that is yeah well he couldn't use link he was too busy being a piggy daddy true oh barga played the muppet show yep who won this time victor was the loser Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us in two weeks for a Blue Plate special episode featuring Linda Lavin. You can find us on social media at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Buy our merch at Muppeturgy.com slash store. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. That was fascinating. Why don't we get things started? because I can't find the clip, that's why.